if you'll turn with me to Psalm 30 this morning, Psalm 30. All right, Psalm 30, starting in verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up, and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, take this word, use it in our lives. Lord, without the the work of your Spirit in us, this word will be incomprehensible and to no effect. So I pray that your Spirit would work in me, fill me, strengthen me to proclaim your truth. Thank you for the time of study this week and preparation. And I pray for the hearts of all those who hear. Lord, I pray that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. Unite our hearts to see you as you are, to give thanks to you, to long for your glory, to long to sing your praise. Lord, open our eyes and our ears that we would behold wonderful things from your word. For your glory and for our good and joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the date October 16th, 1987, probably doesn't mean much upon first hearing to most of you. But I would dare say that the majority of you who were alive at that point in time were glued to the television, probably for the previous 48 or so hours, because on October 14th, an 18-month-old girl named Jessica McClure fell into an abandoned well, a 20, uh, an eight-inch wide opening in the backyard of her aunt's home daycare, and she dropped 22 feet and was wedged in that well. And over the next two and a half days after that 14th, uh, crews of rescue workers and mining experts and local volunteers worked around the clock trying to free Jessica. I can still picture the scene of all the, the lights and the TV cameras and everything and the crane, all of it. I can still picture it. They ended up drilling a shaft parallel to the mine, and then they went perpendicular into the mine to get to her and were able to get her things. And on October 16th, a bandaged and very dirty and scared little girl was pulled out of the well by this paramedic. And around the nation, you could almost hear the collective sigh of relief and the sounds of shouts and tears of joy. There was this magnificent release of worry and anxiety at the deliverance of this little girl in Texas that none of us have ever met. 
And you know, all of that is perfectly natural and good. That's the reaction you would expect to any type of rescue like this, anything less. And you might well wonder what was wrong with the person who went unaffected by that kind of scene. It was all an expression of thanks. And certainly there were people praying throughout the country for the mercy of God to save this little girl. And you know what? Their prayers were answered. The only thing that happened was she lost a toe. You see, when we're in times of distress, we pray. Well, at least we ought to. And when we are delivered from that distress, from whatever pit we have found ourselves in, we give thanks. Again, at least we ought to. This morning, we move to look at Psalm 30, a song of thanksgiving. It's a psalm that's filled with pain and praise. It's drawn from experience, from from real life. The reality of God at work in our lives to rescue us from not only the real pits, but the proverbial pits in which we find ourselves. The basic scenario is not hard for us to grasp because most of us have been through something akin to us, perhaps not to the degree that David experienced, but we know what it is to weep because pain seems to really overstay its welcome in our lives. Now, if you remember the three broad categories that I went over last week uh, in relation to the Psalms, there's orientation, hymns of praise, disorientation, psalms of lament, and reorientation are psalms of thanksgiving, or you could call them a a song of, of new orientation, okay? And that's what this psalm is. It's a psalm of reorientation or that new orientation. Now, one thing that I want to make clear is that this does not mean that Uh, it brings us back automatically to the exact point of orientation that the person found themselves in. But actually that there's been some growth from that point to where they are now. There's been a change in the understanding of who the Lord is and of how much more we can trust Him in all things. See, David is no longer the same person he was before this experience happened, before this distress in his life. I think of Psalm 119, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You see, there's a change. There's maturation in our lives. So this psalm is an individual expression of thanksgiving, but in it is a call to others to join in praise of what God has done. It's a sequel. Uh, It's uh, part three, in a sense. It's the third movie in line. It's, it's the sequel to that psalm of disorientation, to the lament. And it, this needs to be there. You don't want to just stay in a time of lament. You don't want to be st- stick, stuck in a Psalm 88 where it ends in no praise. It's the black sheep of the Psalter. Folks, we cannot be like the nine lepers out of the ten. All who were healed but nine of them did not return and give thanks to the Lord. We need to be like the one, giving praise and thanks for what He's done in our lives. So the song of thanksgiving has a tenor of praise to it, but it's a slightly different character than a, a hymn of praise, the song of orientation, because a song of praise looks to general ideas or things in the distant past as to what God has done, whereas the song of thanksgiving... Song of Thanksgiving focuses more on the immediate, 
on the distress that has recently been relieved. This is part of the life of a worshiper, folks. It's having a mindset that looks to God. It's a mindset that sees that God is not actually distant, that He's at work in all of life. He's actively saving His people day in and day out and delivering us from trouble. So now we move to the psalm. And as we do so, we will frame it with two overarching ideas. First, the story of the psalm, and then second, the song of the psalm. And my prayer is that as we look at this, we will see the the call to um, more of a mindset of trust in our lives, difficulties, and in all of life, and that we will actually hopefully from this have a desire and a push to cultivate a heart of thanksgiving to cultivate a heart that longs to give thanks to the Lord. So David lived the pain and distress and deliverance of this psalm. As I said earlier, it's written out of experience. It's not especially specific, and I've gone through that. That's one of the beauties of the psalms. But it is extremely descriptive and instructive for all believers. The emotions of this psalm range from pain to praise, from tears to thanksgiving. The thanksgiving takes the lead. You, You can realize that as you read through it. Yet it was born out of something. That thanksgiving came out of an experience. Now, as you surely heard much of this as I read through the psalm, but I want you to listen again to some words or phrases that David uses to describe the situation he was in. You have drawn me up. I cried to you for help. You have healed me. You have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. You see actually in the psalm an idea of the anger of the Lord. David says, weeping may tarry. He says, I was dismayed. He uses the phrase, my mourning, or you loosed my sackcloth. And if you've ever seen sackcloth, it doesn't look comfortable. There's pain with sackcloth. And so this language helps us feel what David felt. The words are meant to draw us into the text. They don't hide the pain of being a sinner in a sinful and broken world. Folks, listen, do not run from or seek to ignore that pain. It is calling you to something. It is speaking to you. I'm not saying don't seek to have it alleviated, but don't ignore it. Understand that it's there to point you to something, to wake you up quite often. So let's look at these first three verses. What serve as a summary of David's experience? Verse 1, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. And that word that David uses for drawn me up is the picture of a well, of something being drawn up out of a well, out of a deep, dark well of pain and grief. A well where if David had remained... It would have led to his foes actually dancing over his grave. That pit was a place of isolation, of fear, of sadness, of danger. But the Lord drew him out. The Lord pulled him out of that darkness. Then look at verse 2 and 3. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Here is a bit more detail. David was on the brink of death. The language used is very strong. He was, you know, as we would say, he was one foot in the grave in in many respects. Yet he was rescued. He was restored to life. 
Sheol, that word speaks of death, darkness, the, uh, of the pit. It's the place where man is cut off from the, from the blessed presence of God, his, his presence of God to bless the life of a person. Psalm 28.1, to you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. You can hear the distress in that psalm or Psalm 40, verses 1 and 2. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure." So you get this language, this pit of destruction, this miry bog where you're not getting out of without his intervention. But I think our question is, what got David to that point? What got David to this point of distress and pain and feeling like he was on the brink of Sheol? Well, look at verse 6. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Folks, David was a prosperous man. He was the king of the nation God chose to bless him, through which the nations were to be blessed. But in his prosperity, he neglected who it was that got him to that point. He became presumptuous and arrogant and self-sufficient and complacent. There's a very real danger in a life that's blessed. Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18, Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. You see, David has what many of us have, a very misdirected sense of security. He saw it in his prosperity in his kingdom, in his people. We, we don't exactly know what led to this psalm, but some conjecture that what led to this psalm was actually David taking the census because he was so proud of everything he had and that the pain that he talks about is the plague that came. See, the theme of the Psalter, I told you I'm going to say this probably every week, blessed are all who take refuge in the king who reigns. And David apparently forgot which king that statement was referring to. Charles Spurgeon commented, Instead of conceiving that we shall never be moved, we ought to remember that we shall very soon be removed altogether. Prosperity had evidently turned to the psalmist's head, or he would not have been so self-confident. He stood by grace and yet forgot himself, and so met with a fall. Reader, is there not much of the same proud stuff in all our hearts? Let us beware lest the fumes of intoxicating success get into our brains and make fools of us also. How true is that statement, right? That same proud stuff is in all of our hearts, in our brains. We have made fools of ourselves way too often. We forget too readily that we stand by grace alone because we are so often drunk on the things of this world rather than sober-minded in the grace of God. Folks, presumption and arrogance, presumption and arrogance turn the blessings of God into adversity. And David knew that. Instead of experiencing well-being, he was actually at the point of death. 
he had the audacity to say, I shall never be moved. That pretentiousness is a bit mind-numbing until we realize we've all had some similar thoughts in our own minds. We've had these overinflated ideas of our own grandeur. So what happened to David? Discipline. The discipline of the Lord. The Lord hid his face in love from David. Look at Hebrews 7 or Hebrews 12 verses 7 to 11 on the discipline of the Lord. And when the Lord hid his face in love, David was dismayed. Think of the, the blessing again, the Aaronic blessing, make your face to shine upon us. The Lord did the opposite. And so David fell to pieces. He was in dire straits. He became so full of himself that he had worshipped his own strength, broke the very first commandment, and the awareness of the Lord's favor had faded. And so instead of being grateful and humble under what the Lord had done, David became proud and presumptuous. In a sense, the Lord did what David had already done to him. He turned his face away. David had turned his face away from the Lord to his own strength and his own prowess and his own status. Now he was feeling the effects of God having turned his face away from him, and it dismayed him. It broke him down. But this, fo- this psalm is not a lamentation. This is not the end of the story. There is a shift that happens. Look at verse 8. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You see, the pain wakes David from his stupor of self-confidence. He turns to the Lord and cries out. He realizes his choices have led him into a pit where he's in grave danger of never coming out. So he cries for mercy. Verses 8 and 10, you have this bookend of mercy because David knows he's not going to cry out for justice because he's guilty. He knows he's sinned. He knows he's turned away from the Lord. His only hope and our only hope is mercy. It's the graciousness of God. And he offers this argument that might feel a little odd to us at first. He basically pleads, God, hey, I am no good to you dead. You'll lose the praise that's due you. The dusty remnants of my bone are not going to praise you as well as I can if I'm alive and I lead the people. That's his prayer in many ways. Now, I do want to say David is not discounting the reality of being with the Lord in heaven and being with his presence. But that, that idea, that concept is not that fully developed in the Psalms as a whole. So he understands that, Lord, Lord, God, if you want the praise, you need to pull me out of this pit. And if you pull me out of this pit, I will praise you. I will give you thanks. I will lead others in that praise. And so the Lord hears, and he reverses the circumstances. And what we hear is a beautiful song of thanksgiving. We hear David's call to others as well to join in this. So again, verse 1, I will extol you, O Lord. David praises. He exalts the Lord. It's given because of what he experiences, the grace and mercy of the Lord in his life. He has lived the reversal from disorientation to reorientation. He's lived that change. 
Now look at verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Now one of the things as you look at Hebrew poetry, look for contrast, look for parallelism, look for all these different ideas. And do you see the contrast here, this contrast of moment versus the lifetime? Okay, they're, they're on the extreme sides of each other, a breath, a sneeze, the, the blink of an eye. How do those things compare with an hour, with a day, with a lifetime? Yet really that comparison doesn't stop with a lifetime, but with an eternity. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for our light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So you see this light, this momentary affliction, what we're going through in this life, it's preparing for us a weight of eternal glory, something that will last and last and last. Or John 16, Jesus speaking to His disciples in verse 20, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament.'" but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from… Do you hear that? We will have joy that will never depart, that will last forever. So he says in the psalm, weeping may tarry. And that picture is of an unexpected overnight visitor or maybe that that dinner guest who stays until four in the morning. They just tarry and tarry and tarry yet morning will come. And with the morning comes that joy. Comes the victory of God. Folks, listen, it does not stay night forever. It does not. And so what this is pointing us to is the inevitability of joy. It is inevitable that joy will come. Do you hear that? There is no chance of joy not coming for the believer. It may not come in this life, but this is a light momentary affliction, and the joy will last for an eternity. Now, why? Why do we believe this? Well, David, David knew the the covenant faithfulness of the Lord. He knew the Lord's name, the character of God. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, the Lord passed before him, the hymn here is Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children 
the children's children to the third and fourth generation. But what you see is this merciful, gracious God. He's faithful, true, and just. And for us, folks, we have even more of a confirmation of that truth than David ever had. We've seen the life and work of Jesus. And in that, God is displayed as He is, both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. He's full of grace and truth. And Jesus suffered. He suffered pain. The Father turned His face away from Him. But He rose again from the dead. And because of that, because He was forsaken, those who are in Him never will be. You've all felt pain of rejection. The Lord will never reject His people. That there is cause for joy in and of itself. Because Jesus was raised from the dead. Because His soul was not abandoned to Sheol. We will experience resurrection from the dead. Death has been defeated. There will be no more mourning. The night will end, and joy will be forever. Folks, one thing, this speaks to the importance of knowing the truth of God's Word. Because everything you experience in this light and momentary affliction, without the perspective of God's Word, will never feel light or momentary. And you need God's Word to center you and to reorient you to what is true. We'll look down now at verses 11 and 12. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. And we continue to see this reversal, don't we? Mourning to dancing, clothed in sackcloth, uh, to clothed with gladness. And when I think of this, this picture of mourning to dancing, we've all seen the videos, haven't we, of the soldier who comes home and surprises his kid. I love them. I, I will cry through every single one of them because it's just amazing. You see, there's one that I can remember. The kid's like doing karate or taekwondo or something like that, and he's punching, and his dad switches for the instructor and keeps saying, come on, kid, hit it harder, hit it harder. And the kid like hits and then stops. His dad goes, come on, hit. So he hits again, and then he realizes something, and he just flips off because he's got like a mask on. He flips it off and just tackles his dad. Like, there's no reserve in that. And there shouldn't be. When your morning is turned to dancing, you should dance. And don't give a rip what anybody else thinks. Because it's amazing. You are clothed with gladness. It is impossible, impossible to be affected by that and to be reserved. Oh, the joy of the Lord is… You know, you can't sing like that. But David's not only dancing himself. He summons others to join in this praise. Verse 4, sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. And I love the language. The, the word for saints here is the word hasideh, okay? And it comes 
from the, the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed is his loving kindness, his mercy, his faithful, steadfast love. So what he's saying is all you who are recipients of his amazing, steadfast love, get up and sing. Sing with me because this is what the Lord has done. He's faithful and he's good. David, David's experience was his own, but he calls others to join in that praise and in that thanksgiving. The invitation to worship God is not something to be private. When God does something amazing in your lives, don't keep it to yourself, please. The rest of us want to rejoice in that. We've experienced a steadfast love. We want to sing of you experiencing a steadfast love. That's the beauty of coming together as the church and sharing in the fellowship of the saints. Folks, David would not be silent. His reversal, the, the glory he experienced of being pulled from the pit would result in him giving thanks forever. And here's actually another reversal. Because in his presumption, what did he say? He said, I shall never be moved. And you could actually translate that as, I shall not be moved forever. It's the same word that he uses here. Now, instead of the focus on himself and his own stability, he says, oh no, it's not me that shall never be moved. It's me that shall never shut up about how you saved me. I shall never keep silence. That's amazing. That's beautiful. That's, that's, that's a heart affected by the Lord. So, folks, what do we take away from all this? Well, here's just a couple of suggestions. You may take away something else, and that's great. But first, we need to realize that we all have the tendency to lose focus on the Lord. Massive tendency. We are distracting and amusing ourselves to death. We are drunk on the blessings of these lives. And that's dangerous. So how do we keep ourselves from this? And I'm not going to go through and tell you, you've got to shut everything off and disconnect and become Amish. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is thanksgiving. Cultivate a heart of thanksgiving. Cultivate hearts that, and, and eyes that focus upon the Lord's work in our lives, that, that re realizes we are dependent creatures who are in desperate need of God's mercy and grace. And to do that, be consistent in God's Word. Be consistent in prayer. Keep the gospel before yourselves daily, moment by moment. Shut off those things as well that pull us away from the Lord and towards believing that we are actually self-sufficient, believing that we're presumptuous. You know, learn to serve others. And then second, know this. You have a God who hears when you fail. When we find ourselves in the distress of not listening to the first point, when we find ourselves in the distress of our own making or in just the, the making of the sin of others, the brokenness of this world, this text is an encouragement to us, don't ever give up. Pour out your heart before Him. Plead with Him. Mark Furtado wrote, Though you may at times feel hopeless in the darkness of life's adversity, the truth is that you always have reason for hope. Thanksgiving and praise always get the last word. Though weeping may go on throughout the night, remember, joy comes in the morning. Folks, joy 
is an inevitable reality for the believer. There will be reversal. We can rely on the character of God. There is reason, bountiful reason, for thanksgiving in every area of our lives because we have a faithful, loving, gracious, kind, compassionate God who pursues his children all the days of our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reality that we have everything we need in you, that you are good, gracious, kind, that you love us with an everlasting love. And so cultivate our hearts to be ones focused on thanksgiving, on you. Remove the blinders that keep us away from you and let us see your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.